Hello and welcome back to the Ultrasound Gel Podcast. I'm Mike Pratz and I'm with Cray Bolger again today. This is part two of our special edition interview with Larry Israel discussing his book, The Pocus Manifesto. Now, if you missed part one, go back and check it out. That's episode 130, available at ultrasoundgel.org slash 130. And now let's hear more of our discussion. And Larry, that's something that comes up often in this book is the interplay between physical exam, point of care ultrasound, how can they be intertwined in the overall evaluation of a patient? And you brought this up earlier, but I'm sure a lot of people are going to say using POCUS, could that lead to the degradation of our physical exam skills, the art of the physical exam? Do you have that concern or what do you say to critics who might have those fears? I mean, I think the people who use those criticisms maybe don't quite understand what POCUS is. It's not like you outsource it to some radiologist just in some windowless room with a machine that nobody touches the patient. I mean, you're like in the patient's room, getting really close to them, putting gel on their chest. I mean, it takes a long time to acquire good images. It's really, I think, the exact opposite. You're really spending a lot more time in showing the patient their internal organs and what you're diagnosing. I mean, they've studied this in the book. I talk about this big study, I think, in um, Denmark. They basically polled 1,000 or 600 patients who were undergoing POCUS for root routine exams and just ask them, like, what do you think about this? It was overwhelmingly positive. They felt like the physician took them more seriously. The exam was more thorough. I mean, it's once again, once you do it, it's like, I don't see how that's a legitimate criticism because like a stethoscope, you take it out, you put it on their chest. This is probe, you take it out, you put it on their chest. I mean, it's very, very similar. It's just getting you much better information. That's super interesting. This was actually the keynote at AIUM was how POCUS and handheld technology is actually putting us back at the bedside again, instead of at a computer, embracing technology as a tool to bring us back to the patient, especially in the era of shared decision-making. I don't know about you, but I found this to be very helpful for my patients. Instead of seeing your blah, 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 says blah, blah, blah. So you have to do what I say. I can be like, this is your heart. This is my heart. Yours isn't working. Mine is, hopefully. (laughs) But I think it helps our patients, whether they completely understand it or not, feel more part of the process because it's not somebody in a room telling somebody else to tell somebody else this game of telephone. I think along those lines, though, a lot of the founders of POCUS kind of cringe at the idea of integrating it with a physical exam. They've fought for it to be this independent diagnostic modality. And it depends, I guess, on what kind of healthcare system you're in to how much you fight that fight, whether it's inpatient-based or outside of the U.S. where things are billed and cared for a little bit differently. But there's been a lot of founders who have really tried to keep them separate. Is it a billable procedure that because other people can look at it, you can save it to the Mm -hmm. chart? Is there a right way to do POCUS? Um, Some people like to document it in their physical exam versus separate. What are your thoughts on that? My initial reaction when I first started, I was like, oh, I'm going to want to go (laughs) toe-to-toe. And then as I saw like kind of the concept and read more, it definitely made me take my guard down. But I think that's going to be a lot of people's initial reaction is we fought so hard to not make this part of the physical exam. I mean, I think it's a spectrum of, uh, and a lot of semantics about what exactly you call whatever. I mean, if you go and see a patient and you look at their lung and you see beelines 
I think that's a physical exam finding, but I also understand like if you record the image in the chart and write a note documenting what you find, I guess that could be also considered a imaging study completed by the clinician as opposed to the radiology department. There's clearly a spectrum, but like if you can bill for a, a POCUS exam, like that's kind of the gray area between a radiology study and just listening with your stethoscope. So I don't know. I don't have that strong of feelings. I just feel like whatever you call it, it's clearly better. <laughs> I think in the in the ER, from what I understand, and you guys correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like in emergency medicine, it's more viewed as kind of a separate entity than the physical exam. Is that right? Well, at least for from a billing standpoint, you know. It's- It has its own CPT code, so we can gain some revenue from that ideally, although that works to variable successes in different environments. Yeah. On the same lines, the other common thing I hear is that uh, POCUS leads to the degradation of our physical exam, and nobody knows how to do exam anymore because of this technology. I think that's another really silly argument. Like uh, One of the doctors that I profiled in the book, he was a a Dutch cardiologist who in 1976 was doing POCUS, which is pretty amazing. He basically was friends with some engineer who made the first ultrasound, handheld ultrasound device. And he was doing POCUS exams in the 70s. And, and he, he wrote a lot of opinion pieces as recent as the late 2000s. And he was like, basically, why on earth would we do something else when we can get the most objective data possible earliest on? Like, what's what's wrong with getting that? Again, this is a thing that happened all the time. Like when, when Lenek started using a stethoscope, he called it mediate auscultation as opposed to immediate auscultation where you put your ear against the chest because it was better because they could he could localize the sound better in certain parts of the chest but then clearly the people who the you know the immediate auscultators the, that skill would degrade over time because people stopped using it same with a taxi driver with GPS I mean these are things that yes they happen but it's towards the greater good I mean it's clearly better and I think that's where we're all in agreement whatever you call it and whoever is doing it it's it's for the benefit of the patient we're spending more time with them we're getting the information clinically that we need earlier and more accurately, and that just serves to better our care. We're going to start to wrap up soon, but Larry, it seems that you are actually a pretty interesting person, and I would love to hear a little bit more on some of your other endeavors, such as coffee or how I saw that you're interested in inventing. Tell me about that. So I've, I've done like a couple of different startup companies in the past. One was like a diet app back in 2008 to, to take pictures of your food with the ultimate goal of trying to determine the nutritional content. But based on the photo, that turned out to be a pipe dream that didn't actually happen. But a couple other things I tried actually in med school, I tried to make a um, stethoscope that project sound through a speaker as opposed to through earpieces based on the idea that it would help with teaching sounds. But obviously, that is kind of an outdated idea at this point. So yeah, I've just always been interested in doing things like that. And um, in med school, I, I had this patient who had a pheochromocytoma, and they had were really jittery. And they told me that they felt like they had too many cups of coffee. And so I had had this great experience in med school with a, a great attending who brewed his own coffee at home and he taught me all about it, buying beans and stuff, which I didn't know you could do. And so long story short, I thought back to that time and I thought it would be an interesting business to basically roast my own coffee and sell it with the goal of making a, a self-sustaining pipeline to fund medical care abroad. Because uh, basically, you know, surgeries abroad are much, much, much cheaper. You know, a few hundred dollars can 
provide life-saving surgery or cataract surgery for patients. And there's a nonprofit that I had worked with called WATSI, W-A-T-S-I. And they basically are like a Kickstarter for healthcare. So they'll like show you a picture of a person. This is what disease they have. This is how much money they need to fund it. And so basically my idea was to create this a coffee business that would honor medical pioneers with each coffee and then a portion of each coffee sale would fund go to funding these people and then you'd get a picture of the person your coffee habit helped and it was pretty it was interesting i guess it was fun it was like really took off initially because i got on z dog md's show uh, his youtube show and then um but then it kind of tapered off and then it just got to the point where i was getting too busy after you know working a long day at the hospital and coming home to grind coffee beans it was just kind of silly so I was like, I I was hoping I could get it big enough to hire somebody, and it just and then COVID came and it just kind of ended. But um, so yeah, I, I really like coffee. I like pour over coffee. I like trying new beans, and uh, so that's really where it is now. It's more of just a hobby. Fascinating. Well, we'll have to grab a cup of coffee. Yeah, I was getting really excited. I'm like, oh, I'm gonna totally go buy your coffee now. I'm oh, thank you. You can still see it. It's at pheocoffee.com, but it's just more of like a. A museum now it's not you can't buy anything on there if mm-hmm. i ever so, do anything where i'm famous enough to get a statue it will have a cup of coffee <laughs> in its hand. maybe two <laughs> maybe two yes and they'll be really big i think you know like you are super interesting as mike said and this is a great like first step i think into just revealing the evolution like you said coming from the future and showing people like what medicine can look like if we can embrace this technology. What is next for you? Like what should we keep our eyes out for? Yeah, I'm doing some studies now, a uh, focus studies. A big I think reasonable criticism is like this is cool and interesting and diagnostically accurate, but does it actually result in better patient care, you know? And it's a really hard question to answer and I think it needs to be a very thoughtful clinical question that you study. I mean, they they showed, uh, there have definitely been studies like time to pericardiosynthesis is dramatically better. Many other kind of softer endpoints are, are better. Mortality, things like that, I feel like are a loser's game to try to study because there's just so many factors, so many clinicians seeing the patient, like just a POCUS exam by itself in the midst of a hundred other interventions is not, it's not a magic bullet, you know. One issue that I saw and in my practice at in the cardiac unit is, you know, very commonly we have issues with volume status and determining is this patient volume overloaded or not. It's clearly easy in the extremes when the patient is has JVD like exploding out of their neck and they're really skinny and they have edema. But more times than not, it's it's not 100% clear. The patient's obese. The cardiologist has one idea, the nephrologist has another idea, and then I have a third idea. So it's like, that's clearly a problem that I thought focus could help. And so there's a lot of research already been done that shows that you can, you know, obviously with IVC, you can determine, at least get a rough idea of, of volume status. Internal jugular vein focus you can do and get a rough idea. But what I found was they were not able to actually correlate well with right atrial pressure on a calf, whether it's the eyeball exam, whether it's the IVC, or even with the IJ uh, ultrasound exam. That kind of got me on a quest to figure out how to non-invasively measure right atrial pressure because that was really like the right the number that we look for for right-sided pressure and determining whether or not the patient needs diuresis because right now oftentimes that results in they need a right heart cath 
to figure that out, which is invasive and it, you know, sedation procedure can, things can go wrong. So clearly POCUS could serve an enormous purpose here. So basically I figured out that the, you know, the standard method we use when we do a JVP exam, you, you look at the neck, you measure the distance from here to the sternum, then you add five centimeters, which is the classical teaching to estimate the pressure. But multiple studies now have shown that the actual right atrial depth is closer to 10 centimeters, but it varies from five to 15 centimeters depending on the person and the body habitus. And so without measuring in every patient, you can't really measure it accurately. So what I figured out basically is if you, this is a little slightly technical, but if you get the parasternal long axis view and you just measure the depth from the chest wall down to the LVOT, basically the posterior wall of the aorta, that's the right atrial depth. Uh, that was the hypothesis. Okay, so then you add that to whatever you get, what you see on the neck, and that's the right atrial pressure. And so I basically, I just, I've done two studies now. The second one is just done now and will hopefully be on the preprint server next week, comparing it to an actual right heart cath. And, and the numbers are, are quite well. So to compare IVC, you know, diameter and collapsibility correlates very, very poorly with right heart cath, at least in a prospective study that was published recently. It's about like R squared correlation factors like 0.1 or 0.2, which, you know, one is a perfect correlation, zero is like totally random and it's 0.1. This was like glaringly bad. And the accuracy, the number of cases that they could get it within three millimeters of mercury was about 25%. Whereas in our study, the correlation is, is more like 75% and the accuracy is about 75%. So it's it's much, much better. And I think it's quite easy. And so hopefully that can be published and other people can try it and see if it works for them as well. That's great. That sounds like a lot of excellent projects and such important topics to study and keep the evidence moving forward. So thanks for doing that as well, Larry. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you and we, we appreciate your time. I, I think I speak for both of us. Any final thoughts you want to leave with the audience about using POCUS in general or your book? We'll, of course, include links to everything, to the website, to the book, and to some great talks that you've given on the show notes. So look for that with the podcast. I mean, I just think, uh, you know, everyone should just try to find their first POCUS and the rest will take you from there. All right. That sounds wonderful. Well, thanks for listening to another podcast with us. Remember, you can find out more at ultrasoundgel.org and we'll talk to you later. More. More. Gel more pressure more gel more ultrasound gel podcast